Stand Up for the Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up for the Truth, educating, empowering, and connecting Christians to stand on God's Word and truth. A man who won't stand up for his own principles is not really a man at all. Get involved by emailing comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. You can't handle the truth! Now, here's the host of Stand Up for the Truth, Mike LeMay. Unashamed of the gospel and standing on the truth of God in the Bible. Hello, friends. Mike LeMay and David Fiorazzo. We welcome you to another edition of Stand Up for the Truth. We appreciate you taking an hour out of your busy day to spend some time with us. We we look at world news. We look at what's happening. And we always want to bring you back to the lens of God's Word. Father, thank you for another day, and uh, we appreciate God. You give us. Uh, a reason for living every day as Christians. Uh, you've put your word in our heart and hopefully on our tongues and that we may speak your truth. And uh, it's getting more and more uh, unpopular. And Lord, we need strength to continue to seek you and please you rather than pleasing man. And help us, God, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, may we be faithful to your calling on our lives. And each one of us has a different calling, maybe personally, individually, or maybe in our professions. But, Lord, we are all, as believers, ambassadors for Christ. So help us. Help us to represent you well. Help us to love well and always speak the truth in love. And in this culture of corruption and chaos and a a culture of death in which a life is not valued, um, help us do our part to change that, to speak words of life, to be salt and light in this culture. We pray that you give us the strength to do that and the strength to endure. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, David. A series of recent surveys asked youth who they trust for advice on important moral and practical decisions. Police, government, religious leaders, and even parents were well down the list. At the top of their list as to who they trust, college professors. Now, this is obviously bad news for them and the Christian church, since the vast majority of college professors identify as anti-Christian and pro-socialist these days. And unless youth find someone more anchored to the truth of God's God to trust things, things will only get worse for our nation and the Christian church in America. Well, joining us this morning, a man and his organization who are trying to do something about that. His name is Dr. Mark Eckel of Ratio Christi Ministries. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to Ratio Christi, Mark. I've been teaching for 36 years. I started in junior and senior high school, uh, specifically in Christian school education. And I've been uh, writing and publishing uh, school curricula, as well as uh, books and peer-reviewed journal articles. I'm a book review editor, all kinds of things. But at the moment, uh, aside from Ratio Christi, which I'll mention in just a moment, I've also run a nonprofit here in Indianapolis called the Cominius Institute, named after John Amos Cominius, the famous Moravian pastor, who actually believed that uh, children should be educated as they are uh, best educated, that is, by each individual person. Uh, at Cominius, we cross three bridges. We cross it in a culture uh, at uh, Truth and Two videos that we put out every week. If people are interested in such things, they can go to the Cominius Institute. Uh, org uh, website our youtube channel that kind of thing uh, we also cross bridges into communities we have a once a week radio show where we interview christians around indianapolis who are doing good based on titus 3 1 8 and 14 and then we cross into college which is uh, my work at iupui which is our public university so i'm literally teaching uh, public university coursework there as well as interacting with young Christian college students who are asking the questions that you've discussed. Uh, this connection to Ratio Christi, honestly, has been very uh, recent. Uh, one of the uh, folks there, Joe Whitchurch, uh, from Purdue area, uh, had been watching some of my Truth in Two videos, uh, Christian Truth in Two Minutes, and uh, the ball started rolling. Uh, he, Corey Miller, the president of Ratio Christi, uh, started watching this stuff. We had conversations. They said, hey, we need uh, somebody to kind of do an interaction with uh, our RC prof ministry, our Ratio Christi prof ministry uh, throughout the nation. And uh, we'd like you to do that part time. So I've actually just come on board July 1st, and uh, I'm glad to be part of this organization. And what you suggested there, by the way, in your uh, great opening uh, about the 
range of people and and what they who they put their trust in. I absolutely concur with this. Uh, young Christian college students are susceptible to uh, the kinds of things that they hear in a public university campus and will fall away if we do not step up and step in the gap and help them answer those questions. So uh, we we agree we're right on the same page with you there, and we've been talking about youth and uh, trying to build their faith and try to prepare them for getting out in the real world, let alone uh, the hostile environment in the universities across the country. But going back to your early days, Mark, in apologetics, what drew you to that life, and who were some of your influences when you were just getting started? Sure. I, I love that question uh, because it does get really to the root of uh, where I come from. Um, I would just make a comment about the, the famous real world line only because I've been a teacher for so long and uh, part of the real world is education and, and university and K-12 education and so on. And I, I always like to tell people that uh, education is, is a real world process where we are uh, getting students ready for that. In fact, I even tell my uh, students that their vocation, their job is to be a student and that is their responsibility. Uh, before uh, they engage in whatever vocation they might as an adult. But back to your question, um, what really got me invested in all of this, what started me down the road uh, was when I was 16 years of age and I was sitting in a homeroom in a public uh, public uh, school setting, and I remember this like it was yesterday. I can still see this happening in my mind's eye. Eight o'clock in the morning, the announcements are coming over the loudspeaker, and my atheist friend behind me, a good friend of mine, he was an all-state soccer player, whispers in my ear because he knew I was a Christian, how can you believe in something that you cannot see? Hmm. Well, that particular question kind of propelled me to try and find answers to this particular query my friend was giving. And I was going everywhere, including pastors and church and all the rest of this. Uh, I wasn't getting any answers until I was uh, introduced to Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was one of Love those him. greats uh, in my life in the 1960s and 70s. In fact, I read uh, all of the books he had published uh, at that time by the time I was out of high school. So The God Who Was There, He Is There, He Is Not Silent, Escape from Reason, all of those books kind of populated my thinking with how I uh, interact with the world around me from a decidedly Christian point of view. So if I'm going to tell you about roots of how I got started, I'm going to always go back to Francis Schaeffer. Excellent. Love him. Yeah, certainly one of the great Christian writers of the uh, of the 20th century, no doubt. Now, Mark, you use something called curricular apologetics, and it's a defense of the faith in every academic discipline. Could you explain that process a little bit for us? You bet. Uh, let me go back to the, the concept of apologetics, just to make sure everybody's on the same page with us, because you never know. Uh, folks uh, tuning in say apologetics, say I've never heard of this before, or, you know, brush me up on what you mean by that term. Uh, apologetics to me is is really a two-pronged process. Uh, not only are we defending the faith, and by that we mean we are actually standing up for truth. That's an important aspect of this. And we go to places like Jude 3 or uh, Titus 1.9 that says encourage each other with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So there's a defense of the gospel, but there's also an offense of the gospel. And because we're coming up on football season, and because I love football, I must link these concepts to football. And I know I'm talking to Green Bay fans, so, you know, God bless you all up there in Wisconsin. I am talking about the defense of the gospel, but also the offense. And I go back to Matthew 16, 18, in Jesus' own words, he said that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church. And that uh, word in the original language in the Greek means an offensive charge so that the church is actually on the offense Amen. against the gates of hell. And that concept is really powerful to us. So, um, for instance, when I put out my Truth in Two videos, uh, these are statements of universal truth that are meant to be uh, thought-provoking ideas for people that say to them, hey, you know what, Christians have truth, we want to acquaint you with that, I'm going to do it in two minutes, here it is. Something along that line, I want to make sure to put this in there, because this is really an important idea to me, and you know, because my uh, background is in Old Testament, I'm, I have a THM in Old Testament, I love uh, First Testament teaching, 
I wanted to just mention Deuteronomy 32:31 because it's one of those little statements in the Pentateuch that just is so devastating uh, to those who may not believe. And Moses says there, their rock is not like our rock. Their rock is not like our rock. That statement to me makes a, a clarion call, a distinctive dichotomy between other people's belief systems and my belief systems. Now, I believe I haven't even gotten to curricular apologetics yet, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to stop there and just say, did you want to follow up on any questions on that one? No, I, I think it's great. I, just one comment I would make, and you, uh, like you, I'm a football fan. You can have the best defense in the world, but you don't win a game unless you score points. And, and we, right. we have a church sitting here playing defense instead of taking right. the sword, the word of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness. We're not attacking the enemy. We seem to be content just playing defense and kind of holding on until the rapture, hey? Yeah, exactly true. And this is the sadness of it. And, uh, you know, maybe later on we'll get a chance to talk about the church's responsibility. Uh, let me go back to your question, though. I, I didn't mean to go on and on just about apologetics, but curricular apologetics. So this is a, a very important idea to me because I've actually just written an essay for a book that's going to go out on this very issue. And it was an essay for a book uh, that's uh, very important in the apologetics world. And so what I've uh, written is uh, entitled Before Outsiders, and the subtitle for this is Apologetics in Every Course Across Curricula and for Life. And what I mean by that, curricular apologetics, is that every discipline has its own set of beliefs whereby its professors exercise their studies. So, for instance, in economics, you're probably either going to have a Keynesian economic uh, instructor or an Austrian economic theory instructor. In social sciences, you're going to commit to a quantitative or qualitative research. In literature, you're going to either defend authorial intent or reader response theories. In biology, you may subscribe to evolutionary, theistic evolutionary, intelligence design, or creation models, but everybody falls into some category. Law professors rely on natural law theory or legal positivism as their starting point. So I, I'm just kind of going through a list of various uh, academic disciplines to suggest that every single group, every single discipline has its own basis for thought. So I wanted to give you just an example of this, uh, kind of unpack it a little bit, to give you the Christian view, for instance, of scientific study. Now, I find it hard that I actually have to say this out loud, but honestly, I, I think it's really important that I say this. Uh, Christians are pro-science. Uh, Christians are the people that ought to be pro-science more than anybody else is pro-science. And the reason for this is because we know the Creator who has created a stable cosmos which allows science to actually practice the scientific method. So the whole process of observation is necessary based on a Creator who's made a cosmos that is actually stable and ordered. You can't do observation, you can't do any kind of science without that baseline idea. So. I'm going to give just five basic uh, ideas that give a pro-science perspective from a decidedly Christian vantage point. Here they are. Number one, there has to be a source of authority where you come from in your science. That is, where do you get the information that you need? How do you know it's reliable or authentic or authoritative? How do we interpret the information? If God has revealed himself in his world, then he can be known, and the laws of science come from an authority and the law of God. That's number one. Number two, God, not matter, is eternal. So if we know from where everything originated, then we know to whom we're responsible. So God is both transcendent, that is outside and apart from, and also imminent, close to, cares for his creation at the same time. But God brought matter into being. Matter is not eternal. Number three, predictable patterns in God's creation. Mathematicians and scientists both rely upon God's stable universe, stable, consistent universe because of his word establishes logic, pattern, probability, prediction, and proof. We see it everywhere in the world. Number four, discovery and invention. People all around the world and throughout time have uncovered truth, collecting data, applying information, exploring, observing the world around them. There's nothing else like this uh, in any other belief system 
where there's a decided discovery process. We're not creating anything. We just discover what God has made in his creation. And number five out of five, unity and diversity in God's creation. Like puzzle pieces put together to make a picture, so the world fits together showing similarities and differences. And there's this orderly arrangement of the parts and the whole, and this is huge. So when we talk about apologetics in the science realm, for instance, and I could do this for every discipline, in the science realm, for instance, apologetically, the Christian view of life and things not only gives the defense of what Scripture teaches, but gives the offensive charge into the world to say, look, the only way that you can do science is because there's a God who's established it in an orderly, stable cosmos. Well said. And, you know, Christians that think science is the enemy, go to the King James Bible. The word science comes up twice. Daniel was a scientist, uh, skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, and understanding science. And the other verse, let me just pull it up here real quick. I apologize. Um is in 1 Timothy 6, 20 through 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings, and oppositions of science falsely so-called. So we tend to look at it as Christians, Mark, that science is the enemy. Science uh, in, in Hebrew simply means intelligence, consciousness, and knowledge. Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, if I could be so bold as to add one of the great scientists of First Testament uh, teaching is that Solomon uh, from chapter four of First Kings, where it, it tells us that not only so did Solomon write Proverbs and songs, and he was this great wise man, but he, he was also an entomologist. He studied bugs. And that just is an amazing uh, statement out of Scripture. So absolutely concur with that concept, these concepts about science from Scripture. So what about the person listening right now, Mark, that um, says, well, I'm, I'm not a teacher and this all seems kind of complicated, kind of a lot to remember. And isn't the gospel more simple than that? How can I practice a basic apologetics, for instance, at my workplace? Yeah, that, that's an important question and one that needs to be addressed. So I'm just going to run through, again, a list of some things, and I, I think they're pretty straightforward kinds of statements, but I'll also identify them uh, with citations from Scripture. So let me be very clear to everybody listening, anybody that's going to pick up the podcast later on. Number one, love is the best apologetic for Christianity. That's what Jesus said in John 13. He said that people will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. So people look at the church, they look at people in the church, and they say, wow, they actually care for each other. They take care of each other. That's, that's marvelous. I don't see that going on in the world around me. That ought to be a testimony to everybody. So that would be one. Number two, I would say the simplicity of a changed life is compelling evidence of Jesus. I love the story that Jesus tells uh, in John chapter 9 of the man born blind and the, fa the famous end line where the man speaks, and he says, I don't know uh, the answers to your questions. All I know is that once I was blind, but now I see. Hmm. The simplicity of a changed life is huge. Then there's the verbal testimony. I would say number three, a belief in Jesus as Lord. Uh, remember when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians chapter 1, he said, you know, I don't even have to speak when I come into your territory about Jesus, because you all have been doing that already. And this is just a great statement about a verbal testimony makes a statement to people, hey, they're a Christian, that makes a huge difference in their life, I'm going to respect that. Another one, I would say, is good works for others that attracts attention to the people of the gospel. And and frankly, this is one of the reasons why we do our radio show based on Titus 3, 1, 8, and 14, do good, do good, do good. I believe that if you do good and show beauty, that some people may actually ask you, what is your truth? So if we, re we reverse the truth, goodness, and beauty and start with good, go to beauty, and then see if some people might actually ask us about our truthfulness. And then I would say, you know, this probably is the most obvious thing, but a consistent, positive lifestyle shows faith in action. I think of uh, what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 2. He said, your epistles, and he, if he was writing today, he'd say, your emails, known and read of all men. And this is a statement of behavior and uh, a statement of how we live before others is the best and most obvious apologetic. So do you have to read all kinds of apologetic books to do apologetics? No. 
just live the Christian life as outlined in Scripture and uh, allow the Spirit of God to speak through you with the wisdom and truth of Scripture. And that is a testimony of apologetics by itself. Amen. Yeah, what I hear you saying is we've made apologetics out to be something more com- much more complex than it really is, and I, and I cannot shout amen to that enough. Stand Up for the Truth on Q90FM, our guest, Dr. Mark Eckel of Ratio Christi. When we come back with Mark, I want to talk a little more about that statement he made, that love is the greatest apologetic tool. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. Our topic today is, according to surveys, who youth trust and who they don't. And sadly, college professors are at the top of the list. Religious leaders are buried way, way down. Our guest, Dr. Mark Eckel of Rossio Christi Ministries. Mark, I'd love to go back to that statement you made earlier about love being the greatest apologetic tool. And when you, when you said it, it really struck me, and I thought of when they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What was it? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. So could you expand a little bit on that, why love is the greatest apologetic tool we have in our quiver? Yes. Uh, so when I speak with Christian college students or any college students on campus, uh, one of the very first things that they're very interested to know is whether or not I care about them. Now, just let that stand out there for a moment. How often do we ever think to ourselves, you know, before I tell somebody about Jesus, maybe I ought to actually demonstrate my care for them. And so when you stop to consider this, you think about, uh, for instance, the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus, it says in the text, loved this man. And even though the man walked away, uh, Jesus was tremendously given to care for this particular individual. Care, love, genuine, authentic uh, demonstration of passionate uh, desire for somebody else's welfare. This is an attraction. So I'm going to go to that word attraction just for a moment and think about Titus 2.10. There's a, there's a threefold statement, so that statement in uh, Titus chapter 2. And the third uh, so that statement is in verse 10, so that the gospel of Christ might be made attractive. Well, my question to everybody is, how do you make the gospel attractive? I think you make it attractive by demonstrating love for others. And that love is what draws and attracts people to us. You don't attract people by being hateful and negative and yelling and screaming and getting in somebody's face. In fact, if maybe we could just pull out a really important word as far as I'm concerned. The word is irenic. Uh, and you spell it I-R-E-N-I-C, irenic. And the word irenic means to be peaceable, to be gent- gentle, to be uh, kind, uh, to be compassionate. Uh, that's what people are looking for in the culture. Who is it out there that's not only going to give me answers, but treat me with genuine kindness and sincerity? This is huge on the Christian college camp or on the college campus public uh, school speaking, but any place, workplace or wherever, it doesn't really matter, to demonstrate love for others is going to be the attraction. That's interesting, and actually when you go up there to verse 9, Paul was specifically speaking, uh, he says bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing and non-argumentative, so I I love that, and I think that's a perfect tie-in, and then of course you, you go to verses 11 through 15, and it tells us exactly what the grace of God does. That's right. Talk to us a little bit. Uh, let's say somebody's listening to this radio interview right now, Mark, and they say, well, you know what, I'm not a teacher. Um, talk to us again about this approach to defending the Christian of faith and how it can apply to every listener. Yes, uh, this is really important uh, to me. So I'm going to explain this by telling stories. Um, and I think this might actually uh, work best for me to tell it this way, because it's actually the, the approach that I take pretty much to most every conversation I have with folks. There's a story told of a young boy and his dad who were practice casting in anticipation of bass season opening the next day. The lure flashed in the full moonlight as the child learned under his father's tutelage. Without warning, the next cast hooked a fish. Reeling it in, two generations gazed on a beautiful bass, the largest either had ever seen. Can we keep it, Dad? came the plaintive cry. The father lit a match and noted the time in his wristwatch. It was 10 p.m., two hours before bass season opened. Hmm. No, son, the season begins tomorrow. 
The boy glanced around the lake. They were alone. But, Dad, no one will know. The season begins in two hours. Please, can we keep it? The father's insistence was resolute. Lowering the big bass into the lake, the two watched the animals swim away. Neither saw a fish that size ever again. But the boy sees that same fish every time he is asked to cut corners, fudge numbers, or submit half-truths in his job. You see, if I tell a story like that, the attraction is automatic. Everybody loves to listen to stories. And the story itself tells a moral. It has an ethical lesson. From there, then, I can take people into what does that teach us and why should we care about that particular story and how do you see that working out in your particular life? Or maybe, you know, there are some folks listening today, maybe their grandparents, maybe their moms and dads staying home with little ones. And you know what, uh, you know, tell us something about how, how can we do this at home with, with our children when they're little? I honestly would look for really great books and stories that, that have tremendous uh, principles within them that come decidedly out of Scripture. So I'm, I'll just give you an example of this. Take Yertle the Turtle by Dr. Seuss. Yertle the Turtle is a famous story about a turtle in a group of turtles on a little pond where he thought that he was all that. It was an issue of pride. It was an issue of hubris. It was an issue of arrogance. And so Yertle the Turtle climbs up on the backs of all of these different turtles and sees all of his great kingdom all around until, of course, he falls into the pond because somebody's turtle shell had cracked. The whole point of the story is the problem with pride. Now, when I ask some students, I'll, I'll read that story actually to them, and I, I even read that kind of a story in a public university setting, and I'll say to them, would you rather hear a lecture on pride, a sermon on pride, or would you rather have me read Yertle the Turtle? Well, you know, the answer to that question is going to be, every single time, tell me a story. So for everybody listening, I would say to you, hey, I'm, uh, if you're saying, sitting there today saying, I'm not a teacher, how does this apply to me? Learn how to tell stories. And I suspect, quite frankly, that y'all are good storytellers anyway. And that whole storytelling emphasis is going to really matter, not only in your personal life and the kinds of engagements that you have on a regular basis in your neighborhood, in your own homes, but it's really going to have a huge impact on the university campus as well. And I have lots more stories to uh, tell about that, but I'll pause here to see if you might have any questions or comments about those ideas. Oh, Mark, I'm glad you um, opened up that um, story and uh, I gave that analogy. I'm, I wanted to, wanted to ask you about your institute where Christian wisdom and life meet, but I have a follow-up question to something that a lot of our listeners have been struggling with, and it has to do with stories, because Jesus told mm. a lot of parables. For different reasons now. He was Jesus. He was God. And he had some amazing truths that people had never heard before, nor were able to understand without him simplifying them. But a lot of our listeners might say, we've been to a church or we're going to a church where the pastor tells too many stories, gives all these analogies and hardly quotes scripture and does not dig into context, does not use references, does not really teach the whole counsel of God, but he's great at telling stories. How would you advise these people who are struggling because they want to go deeper? Oh, my. Well, I guess we're going to have to switch from apologetics to hermeneutics and homiletics. <laughs> if we need to do so, a lot of people struggle with that. I've heard them complaining. We get the emails sometimes. Okay. Well, uh, I'll just tell, tell you from my perspective, and perhaps uh, we can come back to this maybe at another show at another date and time. But uh, quite frankly, I'll tell you how I think about teaching and preaching, which you know is generally speaking the same approach. The first thing that I ever do when I'm uh, preaching, for instance, I was preaching on Joshua 23 uh, a few weeks ago at my own church. The very first thing I'm going to do in any given setting is I'm going to hook my audience. I have about 15 to 30 seconds before people tune me out. And just as a side note, everybody is going to ask three questions whenever you uh, speak in front of them. So what? Who cares? And why should I listen to you today? Now, your listeners are approaching this from the other side. They're saying, you know, we're not getting any content. So here's what I would say to them. I would say, I need to hook you first. That is, I need to give you something to hang on to, to answer those three questions. 
And then I need to show you how that hook relates immediately into the passage of that particular day. So uh, my hook, for instance, in Joshua 23 was the famous line from Ben Franklin, if you can keep it, uh, one person after they had written the Constitution in Philadelphia in, eight, in 1787, uh, was Ben Franklin was asked, uh, what do we have, a monarchy or a republic? And his response was, a republic, if you can keep it. Mm-hmm. And that's yes. the whole point, of course, behind Joshua. Jo- he's speaking, uh, Joshua is to his people, and he's saying, look, this is what you've been given. Mm-hmm. This is what you have. And if you do this, then you can keep it. Now, from that, I explain the text. I go through various ideas that are in the text itself, kind of help people through word choice and that kind of idea. But all the way through, I'm punctuating this with story, with allusion, with some kind of illustration, so that it makes people say, oh, yeah, I get that. That's how it relates to 2019. So my final comment on this, I'll, I'll break here so you can ask further questions. I always tell students when it comes to a communication of any, t- any kind, you need to spend 50% of your time studying the content and 50% of your time studying how to communicate the content. You can never leave out either one. You, let, you can dig a deep hole, climb in, and have all kinds of content that never reach the audience. The other problem is exactly what you've suggested. You have great stories to tell, but you have no content, and people are hungry after that. Yeah, and I just to, to verify what you're saying here, Mark, because I think it's very important when Jesus told the parables, he started off immediately telling them the purpose of the parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like, and that got their attention. And then he put it in ways that they who are not yet enlightened might understand. So I agree with you. I I think there's a place for good storytelling in the church as long as the purpose of the story is clear and it's brought back around full circle to the Bible. That's right. So why is it, Mark, that churches seem to struggle and and we're not able to uh, equip our believers to really be good apologists? Is, Is it... Is, is there a fundamental flaw in the church here, or is it just that we're, we're lazy as believers? You know, we have our salvation, so the heck with the rest of the world. Have you been able to put your finger why, on why apologetics does not seem to be uh, front and foremost in the minds of a lot of churches and believers? Yes, I have thought a lot about this. And since we're kind of rolling into the end of our interview here, I'll just kind of give some bullet points to this to kind of reference uh, answers to the question. Um, first of all, I would say that, that some of the problem begins in our uh, Bible colleges and seminaries. If we don't have professors there who are training pastors to teach properly, that is, and by teaching I mean not only the def- defense of the gospel, but the offense of it, showing people how this relates to all of life, astronomy through zoology, A to Z, then we're really going to miss something in the pulpit. I think uh, another thing that would be really helpful, speaking about the pulpit, would be that I think pastors should do short series, for instance, on on apologetic matters, like a series on canonicity, which is how do we know that the Bible is true? The historicity of Scripture, demonstrating the accounts uh, coming out of a historic context that uh, are unequivocally true. I think those kinds of series would be helpful to people two or three times a year. And then, of course, to teach apologetically as they're preaching uh, from the pulpit. I think this uh, needs to be emphasized in youth groups. Too often in youth groups, there's an awful lot of fun and games without an awful lot of instruction, and young people are hungry for addressing real-life concerns, and they need to be taught how to go about doing that particular process. I think uh, it would be really helpful for the church, for instance, to encourage college students. So if you've got a college nearby, whether it be a community college or a a university, wouldn't matter. How often do you spend time with college students? Invite them over for Sunday afternoon dinner. Uh, let them see a family in action. Uh, invite them to church, but then engage them just in normal life and let them ask you questions. The most important and powerful apologetic, we go back to something we talked about earlier, is love. We demonstrate love through hospitality by inviting people not only into our homes, but into our lives, into our space, into the time that we spend. And so taking kids fishing or taking them hunting or doing things, going to a football game with them, whatever the case, uh, those kinds of things are going to encourage people. I think, frankly, if we could 
uh, go in this direction since uh, this is part of what I do with Ratio Christi is to say, hey, have you started a chapter of Ratio Christi on your local campus? That is uh, finding somebody who can address these concerns for college young people, uh, getting into the professorial ranks, for instance, discovering profs who might be Christians in the local college or university would be really helpful. Then invite them uh, to your church, maybe to give a lecture on something as a Christian in science or literature or whatever the case might be. I think having uh, Q&A sessions would be really good uh, to have somebody who could address uh, kinds of questions that come up in culture all the time around us. And then, you know, frankly, if I could be so bold as to say this, we need to encourage people to read. And let me just pause there. I mean, we could go to podcasts and videos and folks can watch My Truth in Two videos. And I know that might be a nice hook to get them in. But boy, folks need to read books. They need to know and they need to uh, be deeper in their Christian life uh, than a devotional style uh, approach to life and things. Not that devotions are bad. It's just that if we are superficial in understanding of, of Scripture and of Jesus and of the gospel, then we'll never really be able to address the kinds of questions that people are asking today. So those would be some of my practical suggestions about what the church can do right now. Thank you, Mark. I want to give you an opportunity to mention your institute where Christian wisdom and life meet. And I'm going to say Comenius, but I know I probably mispronounced that. You know, that was perfect. I really? recommend you. Thank you very much. The, the Comenius <laughs> Institute. Comenius Institute. The Comenius Institute, yes. So uh, where we are in Indianapolis, we are a study center, which is aligned, allied next to a public university, IUPUI, which is Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis. It's about 34,000 students that go to our university. I also teach as a professor in the writing department. I teach with a great set of colleagues uh, there at IUPUI, grateful to have the opportunity to teach with them and uh, get an opportunity not only to invest in the lives of professors, but also in the lives of students, both believers and unbelievers. So it doesn't really matter to me. So we're grateful to do that. You can visit our website, cominiusinstitute.org.com, or go to my personal website, warpandwoof.org. That's W-A-R-P-A-N-D-W-O-O-F.org. And I'll be glad to interact with folks there uh, in any way that you see fit. You know, Mark, bringing this full circle before we say goodbye, and we've really uh, enjoyed our time with you. We started off before we went on air getting to know each other a little bit, and we were laughing and joking. And as Christians, we claim to have the joy of the Lord, but too many Christians walk around looking like they've been eating lemons all day. And maybe a good place to start is to start living a life full of the joy of the Lord, because that's going to attract a lot of people, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know that whole bit about you attract flies to honey instead of vinegar? That's true. Laughter is going to bring people together, and I think that's really a great place to start. Uh, Dr. Mark Eckel, Rosho Christie Ministries, we've enjoyed our time. I hope we can have you back on again real soon, maybe to talk about the Cominius Institute a little more. And we sure appreciate your time today, my friend. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Blessings to everybody, including the Green Bay Packers and the state of Wisconsin. There you go, brother. Right back at you in the state of Indiana. God bless. So when we come back, we're going to look a little deeper at this survey of who do you trust these days. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. I'm really intrigued by this recent study that we uh, touched about at the top of the hour of who youth trust. And again, college professors are at the top of the list. Police and military were way down, and religious leaders were way, way down. And some of the findings from it I thought were interesting. The observation that one of the reasons young people look to their college professors is that the college professors are in closer proximity to them. Uh, they're, they're with them every day. And another reason was that they're actually showing interest in them. Now, when you look at things like the police and the military, you know, it's, it's going to be very hard for them to interact with people on a regular basis. In fact, we don't want that. You know, usually our interaction with police is when we've done something wrong. What is that source? For those those statistics, uh, I'm I'm looking that up because I actually saw it on television this morning. The guy was going through it on a network, so I'm I'm waiting for it to come. I'm wondering out. if any if there's some kind of euphoria with that. You know, the euphoria of getting away from the parents and starting a new life on your yeah, own. You the, know, the euphoria of 
this is my life now, yep. and so he this did, is he a did part cite of that. He yeah. did cite that. That it's like you know every every youth kind of thinks after a while their parents are the dumbest people on the planet, but then as they grow older they realize their parents weren't. They suddenly got smart. Um, this this fact that religious leaders are way at the bottom intrigues me though, and I, I just want to share a couple things with you that maybe give some insight as to why younger people just don't trust religious leaders. Well, for one reason, they see a whole bunch of greedy televangelists on air with getting rich uh, quick schemes, you know, building uh, big mansions and and, and purchasing private jets through spiritual manipulation. Uh, Young people, that turns them off. Uh, Perhaps they never had a serious discussion with their parents who should be their spiritual leaders. We're all getting to a point in this country where we are chasing our own tails with busyness. And, and we don't take the time to sit down with our young people and really mentor them. I also think perhaps they see a Christian church whose leaders are increasingly shallow in biblical wisdom and understanding, and they're really unable to address key issues that, and, and questions that youth have these days. And I wrote down a couple of them here that, to consider. While some of my friends are homosexual or transgender and they're very nice people, so why would God send them to hell, as you claim? It's a legitimate question. If God is love, then why does he allow so much suffering? I heard that several times over the last couple of days on national television from people. Where was God in Dayton, Ohio? Where was God in El Paso, Texas? Uh, where was God when these mass shooters opened up and killed so many people? Why didn't he do something about it? And this is, again, getting to the core of apologetics and understanding the Word of God and how to explain it, as uh, Dr. Eccles said, in a way that makes sense. And lastly, I wonder if they're turned off to religious leaders in church because we argue over relatively unimportant matters in the Christian faith instead of tackling the difficult, life-changing issues. They're turned off maybe because they see us as petty. Understand youth are all about community. You will hear that time after time after time when you talk to young people. They want to belong to a community. And increasingly, they look at the church community as something of, why would I want to belong here? Their false beliefs about Christianity are that we hate homosexuals and transgenders, uh, that that all we do is get in people's faces, that we're self-righteous, we're hypocritical, and and we've got to change that image. And it begins with, as Dr. Eccles said, starting to live in a way that exhibits the life of Christ. Um, 1 Peter 3, 15, 16 tells us to be prepared to share the reason for our hope. You know, it just while we want to go to heaven isn't a good answer. Why do we have this hope? What does the Bible say about it? What do we know about God? And how can we interact with young people in that area? And secondly, I think uh, parents, pastors, and older Christian mentors must be willing to spend significant time with younger people. And David, I, I go back in the Old Testament. There was something called the minion. And what it was was when a young man went through his bar mitzvah, he became a man. Age 13, age 14, he's now a man. He was now given greater freedom to make choices. But he had around him a minion. It would be his parents, his grandparents, his uncles, and other community leaders. And they would come alongside this young man. And as he was learning that he now had freedom to make certain choices, they were there to advise him. You know, the, the example I might use today is if a child turned 14 and said, well, I think now I should be able to stay up to midnight and school nights. Well, the minion would sit down and say, well, let's look at this for a little bit. You need eight or nine hours of sleep at your age. You have to get up at six. Is that going to be a good thing to only get six hours of sleep a night? It's little things we can do like that. I don't see biblical Christianity being passed on to the next generation the way it should. I think of a relay race all the time. You have uh, four men or women running a 440 relay race, and there's a baton in their hand. And the first one sprints and passes the baton to the next one and on and on. You drop that baton, you lose the race. We are not taking that baton, the, the reason for our hope, David, I think, and firmly, firmly putting it in the hand of this next generation. And we are suffering the consequences. We can blame media. We can blame uh, education. But the reality is we have the power of God's word and spirit, and we're, we're just not connecting with these young people and passing on the reason for our hope. Yeah, Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and of course Jesus came that we might have life. And if, if, if Satan can't uh, seduce us with a false teaching, 
you can keep us busy and distracted. Yeah. And what does modern technology do and conveniences and everything we have that we're so so privileged here in America to have uh, all this everything for for every one of our needs and the, everything is instant. But is that the best thing we have? You know, I, I think we have to go back to the early days in the Bible. They <laughs> way before electricity. What did they have? They had scripture. How did they teach their kids? They read from the Bible and they prayed. What have we done in America? Here's the TV. Here's video games. Here's a couple other games. Here's some cartoon characters. Here we'll send you into Sunday school when you're talking about stories and and fables. Oh, they're biblical stories, but they're you know what I mean. Yeah. And so and then they, we send them into public schools for how many years? Is it twelve years? In uh, yeah, government well, twelve to sixteen. A government-run school system where kids and Christian kids are away from their parents away from the church, away from anything to do with biblical instruction for that many hours a day, for that many hours a week, for that many months of the year. And we wonder what happened to mentorship, discipleship, what happened to the gospel, what happened to training kids and building up our children, our youth, on a f- solid foundation that cannot be shaken, the truth of God's Word. We shouldn't wonder. We have the answers. Yeah. We know. But now we're just challenged with this modern society and everything else that our neighbors are doing. I'm not going to pull my kids out of the public school because that's they're, all their friends are there. Okay. Well, you know what kind of education you're going to get as long as you know. Yeah. There is one thing. William Wilberforce once said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, he said, um, um, you can no longer say that you did not know. So now... Most people who listen to this program, we've had Duke Pesta on, we've had others on talking about education and how to bring up Christian children, and that's what we're talking about here, how to raise Christian youth today. You can't let a secular country and culture do it. And I I didn't even mention Hollywood, the music industry, the entertainment industry, TV. I didn't even mention that. I just mentioned taking kids away from parents and their church and putting them into public schools and giving them all these other things to keep them occupied, there was no such concept I, that I could read of in Scripture where the Israelites or anyone else, the disciples, took children aside and said, here, do this and stay busy while we go do adult things and talk about yeah. the temple or God's Word. I know. I, lo- I loved Mark's story <laughs> about the, uh, the man taking his son bass fishing and you know catching this big bass, but it was two hours before season opened. And, uh, you know, just reiterating to the son that the law says we can't keep bass until midnight. And he said, so they never forgot what that bass looked like, never saw another one like it. But the the principle he learned endured for a long time. And I I keep going back to why Jesus used parables. Now, I know part of it was so that those who were blind would not see. I get that. But I also think he used parables to make the kingdom of God real to people. The kingdom of God is like a woman who found a pearl and sold everything she had because she had this great pearl of price. The kingdom of God is like a man who sowed seed. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And he was able to relate to people because what had been taught about the kingdom of God by the Pharisees was so distant from what the scriptures really were because they weren't literally teaching the, the Torah anymore. They were, they were putting their own spin Traditions. In it. Yeah, traditions. And, and so we, we, we've got to figure out a way here that we can pass this baton and, uh, you know, Dave Wager and I talk a lot. We're, we're getting up there in years. Uh, we're approaching the last, uh, you know, decade or two of our lives. And we would love to just figure out a way we can pass on our experience, our knowledge, our mistakes uh, to this next generation of young men and help men and help them learn from the mistakes we've made and the lessons we've learned. And I, I really would hope, and I'm probably hoping against hope, David, uh, that there are people out there listening right now that say, you know what, let's start taking the book of Titus seriously. Old men teach you young men. Old women teach you young women. And, and really setting up something here where we can start to pass that spiritual baton onto our children. If you just look at the last 30 years and the trends in the, area, the nation away from Christianity towards godless socialism and everything else, uh, the, the sense of entitlement that young people have been taught, the sense that they're own, their own little God and no one can ever argue with them, we are in bad, bad shape as a nation. And if we don't get this right now and return to God's precepts, the nation is headed to some very dark times. The uh, church in America is going to be headed to a lot of empty buildings, just like you have in Europe now. So I would hope 
that a, a group of us are serious about really wanting to impart the wisdom we've received from God and also to help young people learn from the mistakes we've made and, and really start to turn this thing around. Because if we don't, if you think the country's in trouble now and the church is in trouble now, I think it's headed to some very, very dark days. I don't believe we are going to turn it around, Mike, and, and usually I'm an optimist. <laughs> but it, when it comes to this nation and Christianity and the church, I think the best thing we can do is prepare for the signs of what is to come. And they're not pleasant. And the judgment to come. What, what are things? Second Timothy uh, chapter 3, for one example. Um, we need to prepare people for, I mean, hearts are growing cold. Lawlessness is increasing. All these signs that we're seeing in our culture. Now there's a, a movie coming out from Hollywood on how Hollywood elites and liberals are going literally hunting conservatives and what they call deplorables, those who support President Trump. That is an actual movie that Hollywood put the, got the okay, got a studio, got the production budget, filmed the movie. The trailer was run on ESPN, Worldwide Sports Network, and they pulled it after the shootings this past weekend. They pulled it. But this trailer was liberals going out, elites going out and shooting, killing conservatives for wow. sport. This is what they're putting out. And then they're saying, well, hey, we, the president is responsible for the shooting. No, it's the heart of man. We better get ready for the times we are going to endure as Christians. Jesus said, if they hated me first, they will hate you. Well, and, we, and we can go on and on and talk about that another time. Well, we'll close with one of my favorite little parables I like to use. The world is the Titanic. It is hit an iceberg. It is sinking. It is doomed. That's from the Word of God. We have responsibility. We can row up to that boat and get lives off that ship and get them to the solid rock of Jesus Christ. The world is going to be destroyed one day, but the only thing that lasts for eternity are the souls of men. And let's take that seriously. When we come back, we'll wrap up the show and talk about tomorrow. We're getting ready to wrap up today's show. Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. Now, here's Mike LeMay. The movie David was referencing is called The Hunt by Universal Pictures. It's a movie reportedly featuring liberal elites hunting red state deplorables for sport. My, oh my. Tomorrow, your questions and your comments speak up at 90100 or comments at standupforthetruth.com. For David Fiorazzo and Crash Connell, Mike LeMay standing up for the truth. Be bold, strong, and unashamed of the gospel because the Lord your God is always with you.